If you're not already there, turn to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, we're gonna be looking at verses four through eight A, or the first part of uh, chapter, I'm sorry, verse eight. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, use one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. And in that Bible, I believe you can turn to page 981, 981, and that will bring you to our text. But before we get started, let me do what I always do. How many of you have read Philippians this last week? Yes? Excellent. How many of you have read it in the last couple of months, the entire letter? Very good. All right. Good. Good to see you guys. How are you doing? Good. All right. Um, well, keep at it. Keep at it. And uh, read it this next week as well. But let's jump into the letter. Last time we looked at verse, uh, verses 1 through 3, right, of chapter 3. Last time I was up here preaching through Philippians. In those verses, as Paul has done before, he wanted to warn the church, or he did warn the church at Philippi, about Judaizers. About Judaizers. If you're here, do you remember that term, Judaizers? Judaizers? Okay. Judaizers, just as a reminder, were a grouping of Jews who professed to believe in Jesus as the Christ but insisted that in order for Gentile persons, non-Jewish persons, in order for them to be saved, in order for them to become right with God and spend eternity with him, they had to do something more than just trust in and follow Jesus. Something more. That something more was basically, basically a commitment to Judaism which included obedience to the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law, and, in line with that law, for all males, circumcision. Circumcision. As one commentator says regarding the Judaizers, they opposed, quote, the validity of the conversion of Gentiles to Christ apart from any commitment to Judaism. In other words, no, no, you don't get into heaven by just believing in Christ. You must also really make a commitment to our religion, Judaism, in these ways. So in a sense, the Judaizers are saying believer, believing Gentiles really must also be good Jews. Otherwise, they would not be accepted by God, in a sense. Paul gives a stinging description of the Judaizers in verse two. We looked at this already. And then in verse three, in contrast to the Judaizers, he describes true Christians. And he says of Christians, and by the way, he includes himself here. And as we will see in our text, he had been a superior Jew, uh, a Jew par excellence, if you will. Anyway, he says of Christians, he includes himself, that we Christians, in contrast to the Judaizers, we glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. May I paraphrase? We don't glory in being Jews or in being good Jews, but rather we glory in the perfect Jew, Christ Jesus. That's a very loose paraphrase. But in a sense, that there's some meaning like that there. That phrase, we put no confidence in the flesh, is the very opposite of what the Judaizers were doing. Their hope of salvation was not, was not found in Jesus Christ alone. Very important word. Not in his saving life, death, and resurrection alone. But they also trusted in their own human advantages or privileges and achievements or accomplishments as Jews. They trusted that those things, beloved, would help make them right with God. I wonder if anyone here is also trusting in those kind of things as opposed to trusting in Christ and Christ alone and in his accomplishments and in his achievements. In verse four, Paul elaborates on the confidence in the flesh comment, which that's where we are now. 
that he made in verse 3. He elaborates now. He expands. For context, let's begin our reading in verse 2, and we'll read through the section we're going to cover today, which is 8a. All right? You with me? Here we go. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. This is all reference, all descriptions of the Judaizers. Very insulting terms. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Some sarcastic language concerning their demand that one be circumcised in order to be right with God. For we are the circumcision, now speaking of Christians, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse four, this is where we left off last time. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All right, that's our text. And honestly, beloved, like, I don't even really even have to preach today. We, it seems like that message or the message I'm about to share with you, you already got it. You got it through the music. You really got it. And Tom says, you know that last song we sang? That's Thomas. Thomas wrote that. Good, huh? It's good. But it's all there, really what I'm going to say. And we just kind of keep coming back to these same themes. But you've heard it already, and you continue to hear it. But we're going to focus in on it again because it's really important. It's really important. So, into verse 3, right? Paul says, we put, we, Christians, in contrast to the Judaizers who profess to believe in Christ but add these other elements and say that they're necessary in order to be right with God, We put no confidence in the flesh. Then he says in verse four, as I just read, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And obviously he's just making an attack right at the Judaizers. Verse four, I would say this, makes it clear, okay, that Paul did not turn away from putting confidence in the flesh or in his human advantages or achievements because he was lacking in those areas. You know, like, well, I can't make it. If we're going to go that direction, I can't make it. You know, I have nothing to say concerning confidence in the flesh. That's not the case at all. If that's the game you want to play, he goes, all right, let's play it. Let's play it. In fact, Paul, as I said before, was in all ways measurable an especially privileged and very faithful and devout Jew. As we will see. And so he could easily go head to head with any Judaizer when it came to having reason for confidence in the flesh. So the bottom line is this. If anyone had reason for confidence in the flesh, it was certainly Paul. It was certainly Paul, as I'm going to show you and as he will Uh, look to prove. But get this, beloved, Paul, the Christian, did not go that route. If anyone could, if that were possible, it would be Paul. But he did not go that route. In fact, he puts no confidence, confidence in the flesh. In fact, he now, beloved, he now counted or valued all his many advantages and achievements as loss. And he boasted or gloried not in his Judaism, not in his Jewishness, not in his achievements as a Jew, as a devout Jew, but rather he gloried only in Jesus Christ. 
as the one in whom he now placed all his hope and all his confidence when it came to having a right standing with God or being fully and completely accepted by him. You get it? Then in verses 5 and 6, Paul goes on to list a number of reasons to support his claim that he made in verse 4. Hey, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, okay, I have more. So let's talk about that, and we'll get to know Paul a little bit better. So let's look at that, and we'll move through it quickly. Chapter 3, verse 5. He begins with circumcised on the eighth day. Well, this really is the key that unlocks his other advantages, and it also is a major issue for the Judaizers. Very important, very proud in being the circumcised people. They would even refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. But this statement may not mean much to some or to moderns, right? Because they'd be like, hey, circumcised on the eighth day, that ain't nothing. I was circumcised on day two. <laughs> Why'd you wait so long? Uh, but but it, the, 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 the uh, statement is biblically significant, right? You may, I hope you already know that, but let me just say it. It's biblically significant. In fact, um, specifically, circumcising the eighth day is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke of both John the Baptist and Jesus. That, that phrasing. Circumcision, here we go again about circumcision. I got into circumcision quite a bit because it was there in Romans and we talked about it there, but circumcision was prescribed by God. So it's not just something they decide to do. Uh, it was prescribed by God as a sign of the special covenant that he made with Abraham, the father of the faith, uh, with Abraham and his descendants. And we know that because that's what the scriptures tell us all the way back in Genesis 17, in verse 9, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Right? Um, that instruction then was... Uh, was also, then, it was also part of the law that God gave to Moses. So it was codified in the law. Uh, in Leviticus 12.3, you can see it there. Again, specifically, on the eighth day, every male child shall be circumcised. And there it doesn't talk about it as it being a sign of the covenant, but here we, we find that to be the case. Uh, and again, it was a sign of uh, this special people that God had chosen from among all the nations to be his people, um, that he would bless and, and many other things would uh, happen to them and God would be with them and he would be their God and he would protect them and guide them and from this people would come the Messiah and so on and so forth. And it did, it did cause them to stand out among the nations because um, the nations were generally speaking uncircumcised. Because okay? who volunteers to do this? Right? I mean, <laughs> hey, I got an idea. You know, I mean, no. Um, so it was something special. And we've got into circumcision before about the spiritual significance of it and so on and so forth. But it was a sign of the covenant that God made with what became the nation of Israel, but Abraham and his descendants. And the advantages or privileges of being part of that covenant community, because that's really what Paul's saying. Listen, I am part of the covenant community. I've been part of the covenant community from infancy. I was circumcised according to the law on the eighth day. But the advantages that come with that were many. It, 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 and so like we see that in Romans 3, because Paul there in Romans 2, he's, he's arguing basically the same, he's dealing with the same situation. People are thinking that their circumcision somehow uh, helps make them right with God because that has brought them into the covenant community. He's arguing, no, it does not. That alone is not what makes you right with God. And so, in but again, circumcision was a very big deal for the Jewish people. So he's, 
he kind of backs up a little bit and he says, wait, I'm not saying that there is no advantage to being a Jew or being part of the covenant community. There certainly is. And he picks that up in Romans chapter three, where he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Because really they were one and the same. To be a Jew was to be circumcised, assuming you were a male. He says, much in every way, there were great advantages to being a Jew and specifically being part of the covenant community. To begin with, and he he just kind of, he starts here and then he doesn't pick up and then later on he'll talk about more of the benefits in Romans 9 or advantages there are for the people of God, the covenant community. But he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. The Jewish people were entrusted with the very words of God, collected in a book that we commonly refer to as the Old Testament. Old Testament. This truly was an advantage the Jews had over all the other nations, beloved, because God had given his oracles, his word, to them alone with all of the glories of it and the promises and the wisdom and the guidance and the hope to them alone it was given. They were, they were and are still a privileged people, a privileged people. But God's favor doesn't mean God's acceptance, per se. They had God's favor in a way that no other nation had it. God extended himself to them in a way that he did not any other nation. And it was marked by, among the males, this rite of circumcision. But that didn't make them right with God. It certainly gave them God's wisdom. They certainly should have been taught and instructed by that wisdom and been looking for their Messiah and understanding their need for him. But instead, they counted God's favor as God's acceptance. Paul goes on. And Paul basically, he's just making these cases that I've had all, I've got all the advantage And even more, when it comes to being a Jew. Back to the text. Circumcised on the eighth day. I've been part of the covenant community according to the law. From infancy, I am of the people of Israel. So what is Paul's heritage? He's not just some kid that got circumcised on the eighth day. He, He can trace his heritage back. He is pure blood. He is a pure Israelite. If you, uh, if you remember, we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, right? But we have some other things going on, but if we're just tracing that line, Abraham to Isaac, his son, to Jacob, who is then called Israel by God and has 12 sons who bring forth 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel and make up the people of God. One writer says, Paul is claiming here the national advantage of pure Israelite descent. Remember, the descendants of Abraham included the impure line of Ishmael. So descending from Abraham was another line. Isaac was also the father of Esau and Jacob. But Israel was the transformed Jacob from which the sprang, whom sprang the 12 tribes of God's people. Listen, I can trace my blood all the way back to Israel himself, to Jacob. I come, I'm a pure blood. I'm, I'm as Jewish as Jewish can be, all right? That's what he's saying. All right, so if we want to compete, if we want to talk about the things that make us right with God and you trust in these things and your Jewish privileges and advantages and achievements. All right, let's do it. Back to the text. Circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. So now he takes it up one more notch. Remember, I said there were 12 tribes, right? And one of those tribes was the tribe of Benjamin. 
Paul also makes this statement about himself in Romans 11.1. 1. He says there, that, again, he was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Why does he keep pointing that out? Why does he bring it up here? As if that's some, if you want to talk about human advantages that you want to trust in, okay. Well, Benjamin was a celebrated, celebrated tribe of the nation of Israel. It was a celebrated tribe of the nation of Israel. One scholar points out, Benjamin the son of Jacob's favorite wife. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go back and read your old text. We're not gonna get into all this. I just don't have time. But uh, you're like, what? What did he just say, favorite wife? I did. The son of Jacob's favorite wife, and what was her name? Rachel. Was the only son born in the land of promise. The tribe of Benjamin gave Israel its first king and remained loyal the tribe, to the house of David after the disruption of the monarchy. The tribe of Benjamin stood high in Jewish estimation. It had within its borders the city of Jerusalem and with it the temple. These are big deals, Jewishly speaking. And so it was regarded as a special privilege to belong to it. His parents, now this is speculation because we don't know for sure, but his parents may have given him the name Saul because you remember what was Paul's name before he was converted? Saul. His parents may have given him the name Saul after Israel's first king. He was a Benjamite or descended from the Benjamites. And that first king was the most illustrious member of the tribe of Benjamin in Hebrew history. The scholar goes on to say, to assert that he was of the tribe of Benjamin shows significantly that Paul was able to trace his descent. He knew where he came from. And it was from this highly regarded tribe in Israel that he sprang. I mean, you just don't, you can't be a better Jew than this. But Paul goes on. I mean, it's like, just think of it. It's like getting that purebred dog, if you will. If you will. And there's no, there's no, there's not a mutt in any way. This is purebred. This is the best of the best. Goes on. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Okay, this seems to be a reference to his pure, here we go again, this, this purity, his pure Jewish, so his blood is pure, if you will. Now it's his upbringing. Was his upbringing pure? Was it purely Jewish? One commentator uh, says this, he was brought up in a family by saying he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I believe, I think he is saying he was brought up in a family that was strictly observant of the Jewish way of life. And they add, he was protected from the paganizing influences of Hellenism. Hellenism. That's not a bad word. Uh... I'll explain in a second. He, so he was not, nor was he raised by Hellenistic Jews, as some Jews were. Who are, who are Hellen, what are Hellenistic Jews? Or the Hellenist? They were Jews who had adopted Greek culture and ideas to one degree or another. Uh, Greek, Gentile, non-Jewish. They had adopted that culture. They lived in it. They were among them. And instead of remaining distinctly Jewish, they took on some of the Greek culture around them. For instance, and and this is a big one, the Hellenist Jew spoke Greek rather than the language of their people. Hebrew. Hebrew. And it's interesting, you'll note that there's certainly some tension in the Jewish community between the two groups. The The pure Jews, the Hebrews, if you will, and the Hellenists who have uh, set aside some of their traditions and their Jewishness. We see that in Acts 6.1. You can check it out later, but in the church, okay, in the church now, Jewish people, both Hellenist Jews and Hebrews, uh, believing on Christ, a dispute arose. And a dispute arose specifically between the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews, because the Hellenist widows believe they were being neglected in food distributions. And they may have been. <laughs> they may have been. 
because there was a looking down upon, okay? So, listen, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, if you want to boast, if this is where you want to find your confidence, let's go. But if he doesn't, now he's going he's gonna to start talking about what he's done, his achievements, his accomplishments as a Jew of Jews. As to the law, and the law was everything for the Jewish people. It was everything. In fact, it was too much because they believed by it they could be saved or by complying with it or coming under it they could be saved, which was not right. But listen, you guys are really worked up about the law and keeping the law. As to the law, me, Paul, a Pharisee. So when it comes to law, and again, we could expand more on this, but we're not. But when it comes to the law, Paul says, yeah, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees, beloved, if you didn't know this, were known for being the most demanding, all right? The most demanding in regard to living in conformity with the Mosaic law as they understood it. In fact, they would add on a whole bunch of other rules and regulations to make sure (laughs) that they in no way violated the law of God or the Mosaic law. In fact, when Paul's giving here, this is just another spot that verifies this, but in what I'm saying about the Pharisees and that Paul's a Pharisee, when he's giving, Paul's giving his defense of himself before King Agrippa, he says in Acts 26, 5, according to the strictest party of our religion, the strictest, you, you can't get any more strict, any more intense any more obsessed with law keeping, I have lived as a Pharisee. That's who I am. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal. And this again, a zeal. As one scholar points out, zeal for God, for his house, and for the law, for the nation, for the religion, was highly praised in the Old Testament. As to zeal, you want to you you talk about zeal? I'll show you my zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. Listen. Um... What this shows us is that he was in no way apathetic or nonchalant about his religion. This guy's as serious as they come. In fact, when he perceived the church to be a threat to it, or when he perceived that there was a threat to it, he, in his religious zeal, went after it with a vengeance. He worked hard, beloved, unlike anyone else, to put an end to Christianity. And of course, we know, and you can read, you can read that in Acts 26, 9 through 11. That's one place you can read it about the things he did. He locked people up. He went after them. He, he gave his affirmation to them being executed. Christians. Okay, so you're like, oh, that's bad. Now listen, yes, in the scheme of things, that's bad. But remember why he was doing it. He believed this was a real threat to his faith, to his religion, to his nation. He didn't believe that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. And these Christians were going around claiming that he was and that their Messiah hung on a cross and was killed and murdered. So... And they were having huge influence with the Jewish people. So Paul didn't stand around and say, well, we'll see how it goes. There's room for both of us. He went after him. He got permission. The authorities were behind him. But it was his zeal for God. Misdirected, for sure. Okay? This is a zealous man. One writer says, he was not just your everyday run-of-the-mill Pharisee. (laughs) 
His zeal for the law, for his nation, was demonstrated most surely by his untiring dedication to stamping out the emerging Christian movement. And praise God that uh, Christ intervened, right? And transformed this man because he would have continued to do incredible damage to the people of God. But it was because he was zealous, misinformed, (laughs) but he was zealous. Lastly, beloved, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, there is some debate about how exactly to understand this, but I found the words of these commentators to be helpful to me. I hope they'll be helpful to you. What is he talking about? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. One writer says, as an earnest Pharisee, Paul had paid meticulous attention to the requirements of the Mosaic law. And no one in the public realm could have charged him with failure to keep it. No one could have charged him with failure to keep it. The writer says, of course, a distinction must be drawn between external conformity to the law in areas where men can look and judge and inflict legal penalties for the violation of it and between the perfect spiritual conformity to it that God alone can truly assess, which there he would have failed on that level, certainly. But as far as external conformity, external compliance, Blameless. No one could look at my law keeping and go, he doesn't keep it. He is a failure in this area. Not at all. One writer says this, the expression does not suggest that he was without sin or transgression. For that matter, the law made allowances for that, but there was a prescription for that. When you sinned, you had to follow what the law said in making atonement for the sin. Or it does not mean that his careful obedience to the commandments was perfect. The phrase does not point to his inner failures, which only he and God know of, but rather of his earlier success as a Pharisee when he was required to offer outward obedience to the moral and ritual regulations of the law. And he did it without fail. He was blameless in that matter. So that's his list. It's a sampling, really. He pulls out some of the the big ones. You know, it's like this. If we were were thinking that way, as Paul used to think, and as the Judaizers still think, and honestly, as most of the world still thinks, and maybe some of you think, I don't know, I hope not. That's why I do this stuff, so hopefully you'll have a change of mind. Because you need it. It's very important. But someone, I would imagine, would look at Paul and go, man, if anybody's going to get into heaven, it would be him. I've heard people say stuff like that, like in, not about Paul, but in modern times, you go to funerals, they're like, I'll just tell you, Grandma Josie, if, anybody, if anybody's gonna make it, if anybody's gonna be there, it'll have to be Grandma Josie. And, and normally when they make f- comments like that, what do you think they're talking about? works, their achievements, their accomplishments. Maybe the fact that they grew up in a Christian home and they always went to church and they were nice people. I mean, if anybody's going to make it, if anybody's going to make it. That's what they, that would be the case with Paul. I mean, if any Jew was going to make it, it would have to be Paul. If that's how we're evaluating who gets into heaven, then it's got to be Paul, Right? One writer says this, any of those who troubled the saints at Philippi, the Judaizers, would have loved to have been able to list to his credit those things Paul did. Man, I wish I would have done that. Man, I wish that was true of me. On the human side, these were reasons to have religious self-confidence. But all those things enumerated in verses five through six, the apostle considered loss. Loss for the sake of Christ. As we'll see here in verse seven. So beloved, by God's saving grace, 
and sovereign grace, Paul, who used to be Saul, Saul, who then became Paul, came to see things very differently than he had before. And the gospel that he, after that point, believed and preached and defended over and over and over again against the multitude of attacks and distortions and twistings, that gospel reflected his reevaluation of what he once trusted in and what he now fully is placing his hope and confidence in. And that's the same thing that has to happen for anyone who is actually going to be saved. So let's look at that. Now, this is verse 7 and 8 together. I'm going to read it slowly because I have a few comments and then a few more comments and then we'll close our time. All right? So he said all that. All right? Verse 7. But whatever gain, stop, it's plural, gain, in this bucket. So it's gains, whatever gains I had in this bucket, everything I was just talking about, put it in a big bucket, bucket full of gains. But whatever gain I had, and this includes, as I said, but it's not limited to, because that was a, a sampling, if you will, but whatever gains I had, Speaking of verses 5 and 6, so it includes that. It's not limited to that. Everything he just got through saying, all his Jewish advantage, privilege, accomplishments, achievements, all of that that the Judaizers longed to put their trust and faith in and to be made right with God and were insisting that the Gentiles now do as well. You got to become a Jew if you want to if you want to really be right with God, you can't just be a Gentile and believe in Jesus. You got to come over here. You got to, you got to adopt Judaism. You got, to, you got to become one of us. You know, that's where it's at. I counted, all right? So, but whatever gain I had, I counted. I counted is in the perfect tense. It means it's a completed action with ongoing results. So what Paul did, this counting started at his conversion and then continued on, all right? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Loss is in the singular. So the idea is this, all the gains in the big bucket, at this point in my conversion, and at that point forward, when I was exposed to Christ and the truth of Christ, and my mind was righted. All of those gains, I added them all up, and it was one big loss. It was one big loss, one big zero, in regard to somehow those things making me right with God or saving my soul. Verse 8 Indeed, I count, all right, present tense, okay, different from the other one, I counted, perfect tense. This is present tense, so it emphasizes the ongoing aspect. So I counted, and now I am counting, continuing to count, everything as loss. One writer says, Paul's thoughts broaden here from his Jewish advantages just mentioned to include everything that he, that or should, I should say, that might conceivably be a rival to his total trust in Christ. Anything and everything that might try to step in or I would allow in, I'm counting it, I'm not gonna allow it in, I'm not counting it as a gain or putting me in a better position with God. I'm counting it and will continue to count it all as loss of no benefit in that sense. 
of making me right before God. He says, because of, again, kind of restating for the sake of Christ, because of the surpassing worth or value of knowing, not knowing about, not knowing about, knowing. The word implies relationship, knowledge in relationship, truly knowing, not knowing about, of knowing Christ Jesus, not the Lord, my Lord, my Lord. All right, so listen, a couple things. Gain and loss, gain and loss. We're gonna leave that up there for a second. Gain and loss. Paul's using accounting terms. They're accounting terms. You could think of it as credits and debits or, uh, for you accountants, or pluses and minuses, or for anybody who keeps a checkbook, but I guess no one does that anymore, so I don't know, but... That might be posted to a ledger. Credits and debits, pluses and minuses, assets and liabilities. Paul's ledger, if you will, looks very different than it did before his conversion. Now, before he by faith embraced Christ Jesus as his Lord and Savior and trusted in him and in him alone for his salvation. It looks very different. One writer says this. I have several quotes here. Only one's gonna pop up though, but just listen. Paul has taken his advantages on the credit side item by item. Think of a ledger. Forgetting nothing, omitting nothing, excluding nothing. All that could be put to his good account is there. I am a Jew like no other Jew. I am a most excellent Jew. In every way possible. I have God's favor. I am of the chosen race and nation. I've kept the law blamelessly. So on and so forth, right? All that can be put to his good account is there. His gains, his gains, each and every one. But when the accountant's eye travels down the list and the sum total is reckoned and the line is drawn beneath the completed sum, the answer is an uncompromising singular word, loss. Loss. And then the uh, writer says this, and this one, you'll, it'll show up on the screen. Man, at his most privileged, his most moral, his most religious, his most zealous and devoted, is yet not thereby made fit and acceptable to God. He's not. That's the true gospel. Paul had no recourse but to add up his advantages and they were many and achievements and they were many one by one and admit that the total was zero in the face of Christ. Another says this, after all has been said, there is nothing and less than nothing for his efforts and for certain, no ground of confidence in the sight of God. That's the issue. That's the crux of the matter. Paul, rejecting as useless all his inherited and acquired virtues, had nothing to put in their place but Christ. These I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. He, Christ, is the only replacement. And he is altogether enough. He is. Not only has he counted at the time of his conversion these things as loss, he says, I continue to count. Indeed, I count everything going forward as loss. One writer says, every time Paul felt any pride in human merit, in his dedication, because beloved, he was an incredibly dedicated man of God, Christian, after he was converted. He didn't slow down. He was zealous for Christ. Obedient to Christ. 
living for Christ. But this writer says, anytime he felt any pride in human merit, in his dedication, in his many labors, in his persecutions, persecuting him for Christ, or anything that he had done, he would sit down with his ledger and move that item from the gain to the loss column. Because in the end, none of those things, good things, but none of those things in Paul's life would contribute to him being right with God or contribute more to his salvation or being justified in God's sight. Not a one. That was the issue for the Judaizers. What kind of ledger do you have? Do you have a ledger of the Judaizers? Or do you have a gospel ledger? Are you valuing appropriately, biblically, Christ? And these other things, your achievements, your privileges, your accomplishments, are you seeing them rightly? Are you counting them as loss in view of Christ who is everything and worthy of all praise? I've asked this question before, but it's a good one for you to ask of yourself and it reveals where you really are in regard to seeing things rightly and understanding the gospel correctly. If you were standing before God and he were to ask you, why? Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Would you... Would it sound something like the former Paul who was Saul before his mind was righted and his heart was changed by Christ? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Both of my parents were Christian. In fact, as far as I can go back, they were all Christian. I got Christian blood running through me. What? I go to church all the time. Never miss. I mean, unless I'm sick. But I'm faithful. Read my Bible. Huh? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And, and, and I make great sacrifices for my church body. That's why you should let me in. <laughs> All loss when it comes to that question. No benefit. I also just think about an application for us when we're thinking about, you know, are we believing the gospel correctly and why it's so important to understand it correctly. But I mentioned this before. I'll just keep mentioning it, I guess. But understanding it as Paul understands it and preaches it, which is the only right way to understand it, uh, creates a humility in your heart which we're in desperate need of. A humility before God and a humility with one another. Because, you know, that's kind of where you go if you don't see it rightly, you know. Paul says, you guys want to compete? We want to go head to head? Check me out. I'll show you all up if we're talking about human advantages and accomplishments or privileges, right? So that's what happens sometimes with the the body of Christ when they're not thinking rightly about these things. They'll, they'll look upon another brother or sister because God has been working in their life in a certain way that has brought about accomplishments and achievements of a good type. But they're thinking that somehow has made them more right with God? No, not at all. Not at all. Who makes you right with God? Anything else? Anyone else? And specifically, it's Jesus and what he did to bring about salvation for sinners. And his doing of it was full and complete. There's nothing left for you sinner or me sinner to try to add to it. So my sister Senia gets into heaven the same way I get into heaven. 
And the same way any sinner will find themselves before the presence of a holy God. It is through Christ. So that becomes our, the same thing that we are longing for and hold on to and focus on and glory in and boast about. Not in, not in our achievements or accomplishments. For that matter, all of those, if they're worth anything, are a work of the Spirit anyway. Not our own work. But you get it? She and I and any sinner only get in the same way. There isn't, well, if anybody can get in, they'd get in. What are you talking about? Anybody who puts all of their hope, faith, and confidence in Christ gets in, end of story, period. And so that's humbling because it means we've done nothing. We've contributed nothing. We're humble before God. We're humbled among one another. We'd all be lost. We'd all be without hope. Apart from Christ. Another thing I might say real quick, peace, rest. The Christian life, the Christian faith should produce a peace and a rest, a resting in Christ, a peace that we have in Christ, not anxiety. But performance-based Christianity, which is I'm, I gotta do something to make myself right with God or help contribute to what Christ has done in some way. I gotta, have I done it? Am I doing it? Have I done enough? I don't know. Anxiety. That's not to be the case for the Christian. A rest and a peace in Christ, in his finished work, done, completed, it's over. Entirely, slate wiped clean, in Christ, declared righteous, because of Christ and his righteousness. Finally, evangelism. That was part of the issue, you know, for the Jewish people. They're like, look at these Gentiles, they're disgusting. They are disgusting, they're pagans. See, that was wrong thinking, you're disgusting too, apart from Christ. I mean, you manifest in different ways. But before God, if we're talking about before God, Jewish people, you got nothing. Even with all of your advantages, in the end, you've got nothing as far as being accepted by God. No, nothing, right? So in our evangelism, if we get this, then no one, no matter how jacked up they are, no matter how nasty they present, no matter their past, no advantages, no earthly advantages, no earthly achievements, right? Nothing. You know what? They can be safe too. They can be made right with God too. Why? Because it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with Christ. And if they will bow their hearts to Christ and put their hope and faith and trust in him and in him alone, they too will be made right with God. Done. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for the glory that it is. And Father, may we continue to put all of our hope and trust in Christ and boast in him and him alone and on the cross that he died on in order to save sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.